I would invite you, if you're inclined, to turn to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And uh, just find chapter 44. And that's where we're going to begin this morning. I might mention, as uh, we get into things this morning, and many of you know this, but in our scripture reading that was read earlier from Titus chapter 3, what we try to do in that reading is to find a passage that somewhat corresponds uh, to the passage that is being preached from. And if we're preaching from the Old Testament, usually we look for a passage in the New Testament and then vice versa as well. Uh, So I think we'll see as we move along how this passage in Titus 3 very much relates to the truths that we see in the narrative in Genesis chapters 44 and 45. But that's where we're at this morning, and the sermon's entitled, And Can It Be? Great sermon title, isn't it? Somebody should write a hymn by that title. Uh, They have, in case you don't know. Let me lead us in prayer, and we'll look to what the Lord has for us. Our Father in heaven... You are unsearchably great, and you have done marvelous things. Your right hand and your holy arm have worked salvation for you. And as you've revealed yourself and your mighty works in your word, we pray you would reveal the splendor of your works to our souls even today. We pray you'd teach us and that you'd feed us and that you'd transform us. We pray that you'd help us to taste and see the greatness of your majesty, of your glory, of your grace, and of your goodness. Please empower me, O Father, to faithfully proclaim what you've revealed for all of your saving purposes in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Well, our text today really brings us to the pinnacle of the Joseph story thus far. And the dramatic tension that has been building since chapter 37 with the sinful and the hyper-dysfunctional family of Jacob and his 12 sons, it finally starts to get resolved in chapters 44 and 45. And chapter 43 has told us that Jacob's sons, including his youngest son, Benjamin, they've now made a second trip to Egypt to get grain during a severe famine. And unknown to them, the Lord of the land is their brother, Joseph, whom they hated and sold into slavery some 22 years earlier. And the brothers are consumed with guilt and with fear. And in chapter 43, we find out that Joseph has actually now brought them into his house. And to their scared amazement, he shares a feast with them. Well, the story now continues in chapter 44. And what I'm going to do is read all of chapters 44 and 45. But as we move along, I'm going to make some comments here and there. Chapter 44 has Joseph setting an inescapable trap for his brothers. He really puts them into an impossible situation. And then that leads to chapter 45 when Joseph makes a shocking revelation to his brothers, altering the course of their lives and of their father's lives, and it alters the course of our lives as well. So let's hear the word of our living God, and I'll start in verse 1, chapter 44. Then he, Joseph, 
commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And this is just like Joseph had commanded during his brother's first trip to Egypt as we read back in chapter 42, but now he adds another twist. Verse 2, he says, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, and this is the morning now after the night of feasting in chapter 43, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? And this is actually an ironic, ironic accusation because Joseph knows that God is about to repay his brothers good for their evil. And so verse 5, he says, Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Verse 6, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. And it's back in chapter 43, verses 19 to 23, uh, that we learn about this. And how on that occasion, this same steward spoke peace to them, saying that God had been the one who had put the money in their sacks. Well, they go on there in verse 8. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And they really pronounce their own sentence here. Verse 10, he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. And then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes they were in distress and dismay and they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Now this is really an amazing display of brotherly solidarity at this moment because the steward had just told them that they were all innocent except for the one who was found with the cup. In other words, Benjamin, or, or they could have easily abandoned Benjamin to his, faint, to his fate, but they didn't do that. They all returned to the city to face Joseph. And so verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And this, by the way, is once again fulfilling Joseph's dreams when he was a 17-year-old teenager back in chapter 37, that he would rule over them. And we also see them bowing down to him in chapter 42 and 43. And so they do, again, falling before him to the ground. 
And Joseph says to them, verse 15, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? In other words, he's saying, I have power, I have knowledge, I know what you've done. Verse 16, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. He says, behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Now remember, for a long time, all the brothers had been feeling the full weight of their guilty consciences for their decades-old wickedness and evil against Joseph. And their consciences had first been awakened to their guilt on their first visit to Joseph. When he had spoken roughly to them, we're told earlier in chapter 42, and when he had questioned their integrity, and when he had accused them of being spies. He's calling them dishonest, and they're saying, no, we're honest. And at that time, back in chapter 42, when their consciences were awakened, they cried out to each other, as we're told in chapter 42, verse 21, and they were in Joseph's hearing, and they cried out, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Their crimes from some 22 years earlier rushed onto their minds, rushed onto their consciences, and they knew that God was now paying them back. And shortly after they issued that cry, upon discovering that their money had been replaced in their sacks, they trembled with multiplied and guilty fear, and they cried out, what is this that God has done to us? That's back in chapter 42, verse 28. Well, now these rumblings of guilt that have been going on in their souls, they erupt into a volcano of honest and resigned confession from Judah when he says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. In other words, he's saying, we can't run. We can't hide anymore. He's saying we're exposed and we're condemned. Now this is an amazing statement on Judah's part, on behalf of the brothers, because he knew that they weren't guilty of the current crime that Benjamin was framed for. But he knew that they were guilty of far worse crimes. And so he cries out on behalf of all the brothers, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Servants. And so he honestly confesses his crimes, his sins, and he consigns himself and his brothers to being Joseph's slaves. But Joseph, in essence, says, not so fast, not so fast. And so verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose cup or in whose hand the cup was found shall my servant be, shall be my servant. He's referring, of course, to Benjamin. Only Benjamin needs to stay. He says, but as for you, go up in peace to your father. This is amazing. 
And here's the impossible situation that Joseph has created for these brothers. Here's the inescapable trap that he has set for them. How can the brothers return to Jacob without his beloved son, Benjamin? And you see, this is the heart of what Joseph had been shrewdly working to discover since his brothers first came to him back in chapter 42. Because you see, they had been jealous of Joseph because Joseph had been Jacob's favorite. And so they hated him. They despised him. And when the opportunity presented itself, they did evil against him. And they effectively destroyed him, consigning him to be a slave in Egypt. Well, now Benjamin is Jacob's favorite. And Joseph likely would have known that because he knew his father. And so Joseph is is testing his brothers to find out if they're going to be jealous of Benjamin like they were jealous of him. Would they hate him? And if so, what would they do when given an opportunity to abandon him? Well, here's the perfect opportunity to abandon him and to destroy their father and to let Benjamin become a slave in Egypt while they go free. So what will they do? What will they do? Well, enter Judah again. And after his honest confession of guilt... Now he makes a humble, drastic, and sacrificial proposition to Joseph. And Judah's plea that we find here, beginning in verse 18, and it goes to the end of the chapter, is very interesting because his plea is the longest and it's the most detailed single speech in the entire 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. And as we hear his plea I want you to notice in particular his deep humility before Joseph and also his deep compassion for his father, Judah. So here we go, verse 18. Then Judah went up to him, Joseph, and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And he begins to recount the earlier interaction. Verse 20, And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Verse 24, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. He's referring there, of course, to Joseph. 
Verse 29, if you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol, to the place of the dead. Verse 30, Judah continues, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. With what deep humility from Judah does he express this plea before Joseph? And what deep compassion for his father Jacob does he have? And what a selfless, sacrificial proposition Judah now makes. He had interceded for Benjamin before his father Jacob back at the beginning of chapter 43, promising to be a substitute and to take the blame should anything happen to this favored son. And it was that plea that, that provoked Jacob to allow Benjamin to accompany the brothers back on this second trip to Egypt. But now he intercedes for Benjamin again before Joseph. And he really makes the, in essence, much the same plea. He offers to be a substitute. And think about who this is, this Judah who is making this proposition. This is the Judah that we learn from chapter 37 was the main deceiving instigator of the cold-hearted evil that all the brothers were responsible for upon Joseph. And this is the same Judah whose wicked, idolatrous, sinful exploits over many years are chronicled in chapter 38. It's the same Judah. But this same Judah is now apparently a changed man. His heart has been softened. His heart has been broken through the years and no doubt through the guilt that has recently descended upon him. And as with his honest confession and now with his humble proposition, we see this change in him. And Joseph sees the change as well. Not only with Judah, but we can presume, presume with all of his brothers. And thus, overwhelmed with years of pent-up emotion, Joseph loses his composure and he no longer hides his identity. And so we come to chapter 45 as Joseph makes a shocking revelation. So verse 1 of chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. 
And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And this, by the way, is the third time we're told that he wept as he encountered his brothers. He wept back in chapter 42 and again in chapter 43. But now he weeps so loudly in verse 2. We're told that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. This is a sense of just unbridled wailing on the part of Joseph. And he says to his brothers, I am Joseph. He says, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. Uh, We can only imagine, right? How shocked, how stunned, how speechless and dumbfounded they must have been. And we're told there at the end of verse 3 that they were dismayed at his presence. Now just put yourselves in their shoes. The sense of this term for being dismayed is that they were literally paralyzed with terrifying fear. And again, think about it. Their awakened, guilty guilty consciences have been pounding their souls for some time now with nothing but accusations and condemnation. Since their first appearance before Joseph in chapter 42, they have sensed that God is pouring out His just retribution on them for their wickedness. And now... They're in absolute shock as the sum of all their fears has appeared. This is Joseph who is standing in front of them. The one they mistreated. The one they hated. He's now become the most powerful man in the world, second only to Pharaoh. And can it be, they must have thought, Surely they must feel he will now execute raging vengeance on us. But as shocking as Joseph's revelation of his identity was, even more shocking is what Joseph goes on to reveal to his guilty, frozen, helpless brothers. So verse 4, so Joseph said, To his brothers, come near to me, please. Come near to me, please. What a shocking, gracious invitation this was. And just as a side note, these words, come near to me, please, thematically and theologically anticipate the invitation of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 55 when he says, come everyone who thirsts. And they theologically anticipate the the invitation of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And Joseph's invitation to his guilty, condemned, fearful brothers is what God always says. It's what he always says to guilty, condemned, fearful sinners. Come near to me, please. These are Joseph's words. And so we're told they came near, verse 4. 
And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. (laughs) Do you get the sense? And can it be? Far from executing vengeance on his brothers, Joseph speaks these shocking words of comfort and of consolation. And he points them away from what their wicked hands had done. To what the mighty hand of God had done. Joseph says, you sold me into Egypt, but God sent me. God sent me. God sent me into Egypt. And he did so, Joseph says, in order to preserve your lives. You see, we saw earlier in earlier chapters that God had delivered Joseph from the bondage of all of the suffering that he had experienced in order to use Joseph to deliver his brothers and his father and all who would trust upon the Lord to deliver us all from our sin. This is what Joseph is speaking of. And so what a revelation that Joseph reveals. And his words here, are they not? They are so emphatic And they're so oozing with extravagant blessing and comfort. And so far from destroying them with his wrath, Joseph wants his brothers to not be distressed or to not be angry with themselves at the evil that they had done. But he wants them to realize and to rest in what God has done through it. You see, Joseph is really opening up the floodgates of God's saving blessings upon his brothers. And the gushing waterfalls, the gushing waterfalls of grace and of mercy, they continue to pour forth upon them. And so Joseph goes on to say, verse 9, he says, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. He says, There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Verse 12, and now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Oh, what blessing, what grace, what mercy. Verse 14, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. 
And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. The intriguing thing about that little statement at the end of verse 15 that his brothers talked with him is it is making an intentional contrast with what we read all the way back in chapter 37, 22 years earlier in verse 4, when his brothers hated him so much that they couldn't speak peacefully to him. Well, now they're talking to him. What a glorious reconciliation, is it not? After all these years... Well, the fount of every blessing has streams of mercy that are never ceasing, as another hymn says. And so verse 16 and following continues. Verse 16, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. There's that glorious invitation again. Come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take your wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. This is amazing. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. It's significant that he sends both male and female donkeys because baby donkeys, as we know, will come from them. Well, then verse 24, he sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Oh, the overabundant, lavish, extravagant blessings that are poured out on Joseph's brothers and their families and that are soon to fall on his father, Jacob, as well. And remember, there's a famine that has been going on, a severe famine that has been going on in the land. And we've learned from earlier narrative then that Jacob and his family have been starving. Jacob has been wallowing in grief all of these years. They've come to terms with and recognized their guilt and they are fighting and they're dysfunctional. But soon the best of all of the land of Egypt within the favor of Joseph and within the favor of Pharaoh, is now going to be theirs. And so this hyper-dysfunctional family is tasting of the hyper-grace and mercy and goodness of God. And so, yes, we cry, and can it be? And can it be? And so Joseph sends his brothers with a convoy of Egypt's good things to fetch their father and their families. And then he tells them not to quarrel on the way. Perhaps he's anticipating that they might argue about how they're going to tell all of these things to Jacob. 
Perhaps they're also arguing about who exactly it was who was at fault for their wickedness against Joseph. But Jacob or Joseph, in essence, tells them to abandon the quarrel and intimating that they need to forget what lies behind and they need to press on to what lies ahead. And so verse 25, they went up out of Egypt and come to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. Literally, it just stopped for he did not believe them. Now we know from the end of chapter 37 to the presence present, which as I mentioned, encompassed some 22 years, we've seen nothing but discord and dysfunction and doubt and division between Jacob and his 10 non-favored sons. And these sons don't have a lot of credibility or reliability in his eyes. So no wonder he doesn't believe them now. But then verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Revived. And Israel, which was also his new name from God, he said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 25 says, Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And Jacob's soul had indeed been parched with grief and sorrow and despair for more than 22 years since learning of Joseph's presumed death. And even before his sons returned with this good news from a far country, we know that Joseph, or I'm sorry, that Jacob knew that his son Simeon had been imprisoned by the Lord of the land, and he had also reluctantly let his now favored son Benjamin go with the other sons, and he resigned himself really to inevitable and crushing bereavement. And could Jacob have ever imagined? in his wildest dreams, that God would answer his prayer wish that's recorded back in chapter 43, verse 14, that he would answer his prayer wish by not only returning Simeon and Benjamin to him, but Joseph as well. How amazing is this? And thus we cry out again and again, and can it be? And can it be? And so we've seen that in chapter 44, Joseph sets this inescapable trap for his brothers. He puts them in this impossible lose-lose situation. And then in chapter 45, he makes a shocking revelation to his brothers. And they end up in really a win-win situation. Now, the shocking revelation that he makes in chapter 45, as I've alluded to, it's really shocking on two different levels. The first shock, of course, the first level is when he, when he says, I am Joseph, I'm Joseph. And that was enough to blow them away. But the second level, and even more astounding than the first level, is when he says to them, you sold me, but God, but God, he's the one who sent me. 
In other words, Joseph is saying this is all God's doing to preserve your lives and to abundantly provide for you. And so the impossible, guilt-smothered situation of the brothers, it gives way to this shocking revelation, which then results in the most unimaginable reconciliation and pouring out of blessings. Again, what has taken place altered the lives of Joseph's brothers. It altered the lives of his father. And it alters, alters our lives as well. And this brings us to understanding the reason why it alters our lives. And it is this. The glorious, dominating, life-giving, hope-igniting truth in these chapters is this. What man means for evil, God means for good. What man means for evil, God means for good. And you see, this is the essence of what Joseph reveals to his brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. They had sold Joseph into Egypt, but God is the one who sovereignly, providentially ordered and directed all of this and sent Joseph into Egypt. In fact, as many of you know, many years later, this is exactly what Joseph will explicitly tell them in chapter 50, verse 20, when he says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And you see, this is what God is revealing to all of us in these chapters. And so as we've seen again and again and again in Genesis, the story here throughout Genesis is not mainly about all the human players in the drama of redemption. It's not mainly about Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel or Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Benjamin and all of their brothers. No, it's not ultimately about any of the human beings. It's ultimately about the unsearchable greatness, the unchangeable greatness of our God and the mighty works of His hands in creation, in redemption, and in providence. And so the chapters of Genesis 44 and 45, as it is with the whole book and as it is with the whole Bible, is shouting from the mountaintops once again to us, again and again, Behold your God! Behold your God! God is in essence saying, Look at who I am! Look at what I've done! He says, look at my sovereignty, look at my authority, look at my holiness, look at my righteousness, look at my wisdom, look at my knowledge, look at my power, look at my mercy, look at my grace, look at my love, look at my kindness and my goodness and my compassion. He's saying, look at who I am. Look at what I've done for sinners like these in the stories. Because he wants us to see, look at what he's done for sinners like us. Sinners like you and sinners like me. We've seen often that Genesis is all about the beginnings of God's promise plan to bring His blessing of salvation to the nations. To bring the blessing of His salvation to undeserving sinners. Guilty and condemned sinners 
like you and like me. We've seen that God promised in Genesis chapter 3, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, He promised there that He would send an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the deceitful serpent. And that promise takes greater shape and definition in chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 3, and then following there as well, when God calls Abraham and He promises to give him offspring and to make him a great nation through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And thus it is that God who has sovereignly and powerfully ordained and directed all of the events and all of the people throughout Genesis, including chapters 44 and 45, what it's about is God is working to fulfill His promises. So listen, beloved. Listen and think about what God is revealing. He's showing Himself here, and as we see it in a very concentrated way in chapters 44 and 45, He's really revealing Himself to be the ultimate, supreme, infinite multitasker, if you will. He's absolutely, perfectly, skillfully controlling everything and everyone to accomplish His multifaceted, multilayered purposes. Simultaneously, he's pouring out blessings to sinners like Jacob and Joseph and all of his brothers. He's pouring out blessings to Pharaoh and to all the Egyptians. He's pouring out blessings to all of the nations. And you see, not only is God preserving and providing for Jacob and his family, but in so doing, he's preserving and providing for the advancement of his covenant promises through them. And so this, these truths are the kinds of truths that inform the psalmist in Psalm 98, as we heard at the very beginning of our service, when he says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm, they've worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He's revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. He could be thinking of Genesis 44 and 45, along with many other places in the biblical narrative as well. But you see, for us, what it presses home again and again and again is how worthy this God is, singularly and exclusively, to be worshipped, to be trusted, to be obeyed, to be proclaimed, and to be praised. Beloved, He's worthy. Whatever your circumstances are, this very moment, you can trust Him, and you should trust Him, and you must trust Him. Because he's worthy and he's faithful. And so I would ask you, have you seen and have you tasted the salvation of God through faith in Jesus Christ? You see, God has fulfilled all of his covenant promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the salvation that is known through repentance and faith in Him. Repentance is an expression of that faith as we turn from all that we might trust in to trust only in Him alone. Because the truth is, as we know it, though the particulars might differ, all of us are no different than Joseph's brothers in that we too are sinful. We too are 
guilty. We too stand condemned before the God that we have sinned against. You see, this is what the Apostle Paul describes in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, as we heard read earlier. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And you see, just like Joseph's brothers, God powerfully hunts us down as he hunted Joseph's brothers down. He's been called the hound of heaven. And God powerfully hunts us down and he captures us and he exposes the full weight of our guilt. But just like Joseph's brothers, God doesn't do this in order to condemn and crush us, but rather to save and to bless us and to reconcile us to himself. This is our hope. You see, God works to preserve. God works to provide. God works to forgive our sins and to flood us with eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's why back in chapter 3 of Titus, after Paul gives that description of our depravity in verse 3, he says with a strong strong contrast in verse 4, but, but, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. He did what we couldn't do for ourselves. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is a feast of reality for all who believe. In contrast to our helpless, impossible, enslaving sin. You see, the salvation that Jacob's sons experienced from God through Joseph, it really pictures the experience of every believer who receives salvation from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Guilty, condemned, standing in front of the one who has ultimate power to destroy us. But as songwriter Michael Card captures this reality in a wonderful song of his, he really captures this experience when he says this, to be so completely guilty and given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and find a savior there. That's what Joseph's brothers experienced, and it pictures the salvation of everyone who trusts in Christ. We know that we are completely guilty, and that can give us over to despair. And we look into the eyes of the one whom we know is the judge, but in Christ, in Christ, He's our Savior forever and ever and ever to all who would trust Him. And so we cry out, and can it be? And can it be? This is who God is. This is what God has done. And so I would just ask you, have you believed on Christ? And have you received the fullness of God's blessings in Him? Or are you perhaps unbelieving? 
rejecting him, neglecting him, rebelling ultimately against God and his good grace? Will you trust and worship God in Jesus Christ and know the fullness of hope and life and forgiveness and blessing in him? Or know only God's curse through unbelief? Trusting in the many false gods that there are in this world. The false gods of self and money and pleasure and hate and jealousy and greed and, 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 and complaining and we could go on and on. You see, it's tragic for everyone who's a believer. We, we cry out that hymn, don't we? And can it be that we who are guilty have been shown so and such grace? But for any of you who persist in rejecting God, rejecting His kindness, rejecting His love, rejecting His grace in Jesus Christ, if you die in that state, you will stand before God. And tragically, you'll say, and can it be that all that I rejected is actually true? Well, beloved, He offers salvation to all who would trust the wonders of His salvation in Jesus Christ. May you know that, and so you would never stop singing. And can it be? Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. This is such a compelling and uh, really overwhelming picture of, of grace and mercy flowing down to the undeserving. And yet we know as dramatic and powerful and overwhelming as these historical events are in Genesis 44 and 45, in so many ways, they're nothing in comparison to the mercy and grace that you flood any and all who come to faith in Christ with. We thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ and pray that for all of us whom you've brought to faith in Christ, you might strengthen and assure and comfort our faith all the more to know that we've been fully forgiven, to know that you haven't dealt with us as we deserve, but you have dealt with us in kindness and in mercy and in grace. That will never end. And if there's any present who have never tasted of your grace through faith in Christ, may today be the day of salvation. May they call upon him and know that in an instant, they who were under your wrath now come under your favor in Christ. And the one that they would have hidden from is the one they hide in because of Christ. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the life and hope you've called us to in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen and amen.